having a fantastic day and a wonderful week. Welcome to another episode of We Aren't Dead Yet. I'm Emily Armstrong, creator of the TTRPG system Quests and Quarrels, as well as the settings Beckettville, Culinary Punk, and Elder Space. I'm here with Dazzle Cat. Hello, I am Dazzle Cat. I am the creator of the TTRPG Meaty Bones, as well as the worlds of Pangorio and Hypnosium. I am here with Sapa. Hi there, my name is Safa Burnell. I'm a best-selling cyberpunk and mythpunk author and an editor for a small press. I've been in the fiction sphere for more than 15 years. And I'm going to remind everybody today, don't worry, there's always something we can do. Because we, we aren't, aren't dead yet. Big news for Barbenheimer. The Oscar noms are out. And both Barbie and Oppenheimer are sweeping through the nominations with several for each one of those films. It is an incredible situation with the Oscars when Barbie is going up there for awards. There's a little controversy because Margot Robbie was snubbed, but Ryan Gosling was not. The thing that people are a bit more confused about, and I consider an actual snub, is the director Gerwig not getting a nomination. But the director did get a nomination for Adapted Screenplay. So she's there. And Greta Gerwig wrote Barbie. So, you know, I think that, you know, yes, yes, she was snubbed for the director nod. But she is there for Adapted Screenplay. When it comes to Barbie, I'm going to kind of sit back and then let the experts scroll through on that one. And I'm going to leave it for that. But I will also say I'm just Ken lives rent free in my mind. There's two Barbie songs up for original song. Honestly, not surprised that both of those songs made it. They're both really, really good. I'm just Ken is just a good catchy song. (laughs) It slaps. I was listening to it even yesterday because when the knots came out, I was like, oh man, I got to listen to that again. And I was like, I'm just a da, 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 da. And you know, it's just like too, looking at, you know, we're going to be talking about women in science fiction and fantasy and how to develop strong, you know, and, and just complex female characters today. But looking at Barbie and how they sort of switched the roles in that way, and with Ken's unrequited love that he ends up trying to solve in a not so great way. And Ken bringing in the patriarchy in order to solve that problem, to show Barbie that he's worthy. I mean, again, it's that quest of worthiness. That is something that a lot of us can connect to. It's just hilariously done, especially with Barbie, which is really just a reversal of Plato's cave, which I find incredibly valuable for why that it got, you know, nodded for the screenplay. Because I'm sorry, you gave us a Barbie movie. Okay. It's about Barbie. And you gave us Plato's cave, like the allegory of the cave in Barbie, except she goes from being the ideal to entering the shadow realm of the real world and then back and forth. Like, oh my, oh my God, this is incredible. Emily and Daz both know that once in a while I will bring out the gifts on Discord uh, that I have favorited from Barbie Life in the Dreamhouse. Mattel has a history of doing very clever things with Barbie. Life in the Dreamhouse is this sort of like dolls knowing that they're dolls, doing a reality show about their lives and taking themselves seriously and having those sitting on the couch talking about things moments. And it's hilarious. 
it's hilarious and it's meta and I just love it. They do some really clever stuff. So I'm used to Barbie bringing it and they did not disappoint. And so I am not disappointed that such a movie got such a high amount of nominations. It is a shame that uh, Greta Gerwig did not get the director nod, but I am glad to see her on uh, screenplay. That category is so stacked this year. There's nobody in that category that I could even imagine switching out for because the rest of the people that are nominated really deserve to be there. It was a difficult year. There were a lot of really fantastic movies. Yeah, I mean, you've got Christopher Nolan with Oppenheimer. That movie was a masterpiece. Martin Scorsese with Killers of the Flower Moon. Apple Original Films is killing it. You know, they brought out Napoleon this year, Killers of the Flower Moon. Napoleon also has a couple of Oscar noms, especially with costumes, as it deserves. And, you know, I love Ridley Scott, so there's that, you know. You know, Justine Trier, you've got Yorgos Lanthimos, you've got Jonathan Glazier from Zone of Interest. You know, Poor Things gets the nod. That deserves a nod. It's so hard when you're looking at this and going, it's not like there's bloat. Uh, So I'm really excited. The Oscars this year look sick. (laughs) Like, oh. Lily Gladstone and Killers of the Flower Moon. I heard her performance is just epic. Emma Stone. I mean, Emma Stone is she? She's usually good in what she does, you know. So that's not a surprise. Annette Benning, not a surprise. Actor in a supporting role, though. I'm like, oh man, this is stacked. Like you've got Sterling K. Brown with American Fiction, Robert De Niro with Killers of the Flower Moon. Something that he did that was absolutely chilling. Robert Downey Jr. with Oppenheimer. Ryan Gosling with Barbie and Mark Ruffalo with Poor Things. It's most of the categories this year are wild. It was just a really good year for movies. The last movie I saw that was like, that's in this list nominated was The Holdovers. Oh, it was so good. Unfortunately, I don't think Paul Giamatti is going to win actor in a leading role, but like, I want him he was so precious in that film (laughs) he's up against Cillian Murphy with Oppenheimer I know (laughs) I think the number one thing that makes me kind of go huh is the lack of nods for Godzilla minus one there's only one nod for Godzilla minus one it's his visual effects but it was one of the best movies of the year one of the best critiqued movies of the year It was an incredible piece of cinema done on an incredibly low budget. And it deserved more of the nods than it got. It didn't even get nodded for international feature. And it was the largest international feature of the year, which was incredibly well received. I'm really surprised that it's not on that international feature film list. Yeah, I am stonking surprised on that. I I also think that that this year in the movie scene, the people getting back into theaters has been a long, slow rebuild up. But they have, though. There were always films this year where people came out in droves. Yeah, later on, it was when we got Godzilla Minus One. Theaters begged the Japanese production company that created Godzilla Minus One, please let us keep this in theaters for a longer amount of time. We need more time because people are still lining up you know, to see it. When it came to certain movies, people came out in droves. You know, there were tons of movies this year that made ludicrous amounts of money. You know, you had 
Guardians of the Galaxy 3. You had Barbie, Oppenheimer, other movies too, like Robot Dreams, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. That was a hugely popular movie. So it's not that people didn't come out to movies. They just didn't come out to certain movies. And a lot of those movies had, in my opinion, writing which could have been improved. And a lot of that writing, which could have been improved, brings us to our topic for today, which is writing complex women. And so today on We Aren't Dead Yet, we're demystifying the creation of complex female characters. And yes, we're going to take a minute to accept the historical record for what it is in science fiction and fantasy specifically. That's where we're focusing today. And this is often a male-written and male-oriented space within the gender binary. This is not us making commentary on whether or not to accept a gender binary. This is just us being factual about the fact that most of literature takes place within this space. So in a future episode, we will be bringing on a specialist guest to discuss gender fluidity and transition in literature. We are going to bring somebody on who has the experience to discuss that topic. So today we are talking about women and however you want to define women, please go ahead and define women. And we're just going to talk about creating complex characters and where a lot of archetypes about women came from. And again, those did tend to come from a gender binary. So when we start to discuss women in sci-fi and fantasy, we really have to talk about the historical treatment and the modern origins of women in sci-fi and fantasy. Joanna Russ once said, there are plenty of images of women in science fiction. There are hardly any women. In the early days of sci-fi, women were often, but not always, as by the 1930s, there were over like 300 publishing female pulp fiction authors in the U.S., a rate which doubled by the 50s, relegated to stereotypical roles embodying the damsel in distress or domesticated maternal slash white. The exceptions included such characters as C.L. Moore's Jirel of Joyry, a brave warrior queen, Alice Eleanor Jones' unhappy housewife heroine lending her children to sterile women in return for luxury items to make post-apocalyptic life bearable, and Joanna Russ's Alex. These exceptions increase with characters written by Ursula Le Guin, Margaret Atwood, Marion Zimmer Bradley, Karen Travis, Catherine Valenti, and Madeline Langle. I'm going to make a distinction here between science fiction and fantasy, because there is a very clear distinction between those two things. Science fiction includes the rise of the pulp novel, the penny dreadfuls and things like that going into pulp. And what happens when you have pulp fiction is that you are creating a lot of work very quickly. And that we can also see today with this trend in certain genres where they're creating sequel after sequel after sequel of a series incredibly quickly. Is it the best quality work? No, but the quantity is there. So you have to consider too that a lot of this pulp fiction which survives, the stuff that we've actually been able to capture and bring into the sci-fi canon, includes quickly written stories that were churned out in magazines and in pulp just on a very quick basis. And then the predominant amount of that was all supposed to be not, you know, it wasn't always, but it was meant to be marketed towards the male population because they thought that girls wanted something different. And we'll talk about that too, you know, and obviously there's a place for women in science fiction. There's a beautiful place for women in science fiction. Uh, Mary Shelley, you could say, was one of the first science fiction novelists with Frankenstein. But 
when we consider science fiction and early science fiction in the you know 20th century kind of coming up, you have to mention the fact that pulp was these very quickly churned out stories that continued again and again with the same themes because they sold. And that's how a lot of people would make their money. They made it per word and they got it out there in various magazines, including those edited by uh, Joseph Campbell. Yeah, pulp was huge. I would love to have a whole episode just talking about pulp and how it was written and to cover the whole process and vibe of pulp. I'm a huge fan of the pulp horror writers from back in the day. They're a huge inspiration to my work. And I'm hoping to put out some kind of pulp vibe work this year. So I would really love to get a whole episode on that. And pulp really grew because it, it was the TV and internet of its day. You'd get these novels and you would read them to your family. That's why they, they're written the way they are. Yeah, and where it pertains to the characterization of women, you know, you can't be writing that many pulp stories that frequently without going back to rely on stable tropes. They're fast, you know their patterns, you do have to recognize that kind of portion of it. Now, when we're talking specifically about modern fantasy, I am speaking about modern fantasy in the English language canon that appeared from folklore, but also that appeared at the end of the 1800s coming into the 20th century. Modern fantasy which stemmed from the influential fantasy books and mentorship of George MacDonald. So for those of us who think of modern fantasy, you know, we have a couple of routes to get there. One of them is mythology and folklore. But taking that folklore and creating your own and creating these incredible worlds and things like that really did stem from one very important titular figure, a Scottish-born George MacDonald. He was a novelist, a poet, and he was also a Christian minister. So there is that angle to it as well. Of course, this is at the time when most people were part of some form of religion. And this was happening in the 1800s. And George MacDonald was not only incredibly influential with the books that he wrote, but he was also a very staunch mentor to other writers. And his works include The Princess and the Goblins, The Wise Woman, Lilith, Fantastes, all books where he developed very complex female characters for the time. I say for the time because obviously there is that sense that these characters still maintain traditional placement for women within them, but they are complex, they have rich emotional lives, and you really feel for these characters. They're very psychologically deep characters. Why? Because George MacDonald had daughters. Not only did he have daughters, he was the one that influenced Lewis Carroll to write Alice in Wonderland in the first place. And when Lewis Carroll brought the manuscript to George MacDonald and he's like, well, what do you think of it? George MacDonald went, oh, read it to my daughters, like read it to my children. If they like it, you have your answer. And that was how he approached a lot of that kind of fantasy. Little girls in the 1800s by virtue of George MacDonald and his family structure and by virtue of Lewis Carroll having that mentorship became some of the first protagonists of what we consider today as modern fantasy, where you have the princess, you have the wise woman, you have the titular character of Lilith, uh, who was an adult, and but there's the lost children who are part of that, including the, the character of Laura. 
And then you also have, you know, Alice from Alice in Wonderland. That really was the beginning of a lot of that fantasy. George MacDonald directly influenced such writers as J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis. He was a compatriot and friend of Henry Wadworth Logfellow and Walt Whitman, and they influenced each other. George MacDonald also went on to influence people like G.K. Chesterton and Madeleine Langle and hundreds of authors to create their own fantasies, still somewhat grounded in the Indo-European folklorish bedrock, but of their own way. And so when we look at modern fantasy, when we look at that, we have to see that the very first works that we can consider canon in modern fantasy were works featuring complex female characters. And yeah, Tolkien did view women in a passive vein. You know, you look at the character of Arwen, who's just kind of, you know, the window dressing sort of reward at the end for Aragorn. But he also added that shield maiden motif with Eowyn. As a form of feminine rebellion, she goes to war, but that rebellion led her down the same path that it led male warriors to, to follow that warrior archetype until in the end, she ends up going back to the traditional role of getting married to Faramir and having a solid, good life. So she's not a rebellious character when it comes to feminine archetypes. She still maintains the tradition, but at least she was present, even though it was not in any way, shape, or form a 50-50 split. C.S. Lewis, I think, is an important one when it comes to early fantasy, and people can make all of the digs or praises of the Chronicles of Narnia as they want, but he also wrote one of the first trilogies that really got into very psychologically deep sci-fi with Out of the Silent Planet, Paralandra, and That Hideous Strength with his space trilogy. And C.S. Lewis is an interesting case because he really took from George MacDonald, and George MacDonald had that idea of that precocious girl going out there and figuring things out on her own and deciding that she's going to fix these problems and she's going to do these things and she's going to be an active participant in her lone life. And C.S. Lewis took that a little, you could see a little bit of that influence in the character of Lucy in the Chronicles of Narnia, but you don't really get to see him grow up into what a complex female character is until he meets his wife, Joy Davidman. And then he writes till we have faces. It is the last novel of C.S. Lewis's career, and it is the best, most psychologically and philosophically deep retelling of the Eros and Psyche myth in the entire history of the world. If you have not read Till We Have Faces, you have to read it. It is from the perspective of Orwell, the half-sister of Psyche, and it is an incredible work of female complexity. Written from the perspective of C.S. Lewis, but his wife was writing it with him. And so he had that strong, jealous, majestic, both beautiful and ugly kind of incredible experience of, of womanhood while that book was being created. And I cannot tell you how Till We Have Faces has changed the way that I view literature. Like, I can't because... If my house was on fire, I would grab a couple of things. Number one, I would grab my dog. Number two, I'd grab my computer. And number three, I would grab Till We Have Faces and uh, Fire and Adventure by A.C. Dalton. So when it comes to women in these roles, you have to see the complexity through the lens of the time, which is unfortunate because 
we have more freedom now than we did then. So clearly was everything perfect? No. Were women segregated to certain roles? Yes. But can we find complex characters even in those times? They absolutely existed. This idea that women were just window dressings is wrong. Like there was never a time in history where that was true in all literature. It was just true in predominant stories, which were usually for quick absorption by the general public. These characters often served as decorative or reward elements for the warrior trope, for the warrior archetype, lacking depth and agency within classic narratives. This whole damsel in distress, princess in the tower, princess in the dragon's cave. Why did this become a thing? Let's break it down. And I'm going to go all the way to like early hominid kind of Neanderthal going forward into prehistory and then historical record here. So bear with me. This is just one way of looking at it. We oftentimes see this link between a god of war and the goddess of love. That's just substantial. You can see it most substantial through the relationship between Aries and Aphrodite in Hellenistic myths. That's also Mars and, and Venus in Roman myth. And this goes today, you know, women are from Venus, men are from Mars, that whole thing. You know, it's still so pervasive. Where did that come from? Where did this idea of the woman in the tower or the woman in the dragon's cave come from? Well, in proto-mythology, what we have is this idea that a cave is a representation of womanhood. A cave is a dark, usually damp, safe place. It is a place that before people started making buildings, they would find a cave to hide in and that would protect them. And they would be able to then go forth and survive. You know, we have some of the earliest human dwellings uh, that we have record of early hominids is in caves. People lived in caves and that kind of cave was that protective, almost womb-like embrace. There's this idea that a cave or that kind of sequestered space is a representation of the womb. And so when you have this idea that a woman spent so much of her time sequestered. Let's go back to early hominids. Let's go back to Neanderthals. Let's go back to early Homo sapiens. You're not living in towns. You're not living with a whole bunch of walls around you. You're living in caves or, you know, later on they created certain dwellings, but there was still a very large risk of predation. There were apex predators all around there was still a sense that the world was a very chaotic and dangerous place. We see this with the Inungard and Udengard in Norse mythology, and we see this in tons of other places. Blood is one of the biggest things that signify to a predator that there are wounded animals around. So while a woman is going through certain things in her life on a cyclical basis, while a woman is going through things which make her more of a target... You have her in as safe a place as you can, and then you take the men and you put them outside the door. You have them outside guarding because they don't understand that feminine mystery going on. We went, no, 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 this isn't for you. This is women's things. Go away. And we kind of added embarrassment to it. We created almost a wall of shame around the female biology. And I think more than anything, that's why you end up having something which in the past was a man holding his spear and shield and hoping to God that his baby is born before a pack of wolves comes and tries to destroy them all turns into, I 
valiant Prince Charming. I'm going to rescue Rapunzel from a tower. Let down your hair, you know, and then all of a sudden she's off and getting married to some guy she just met. You're taking this primal protective force and you're turning it into schlock because we lost the ability to see what that truly was. And I think we get to see glimpses of that in, you know, the relationship between Ares and Aphrodite. You get to see that, you know, men going off to battle, men going off to hurl themselves at other men in order to, you know, destroy or men protecting people from some form of danger that takes stimulus to get yourself to the point where you're willing to fight. And what is the biggest stimulus instinctually that human beings have? It has been for so long, the communal unit and protecting somebody that you care about, protecting somebody that you love. And I'm specifically using that language because I believe that it is more than just, you know, a man and a woman in holy matrimony, as the gender binary said. I think that it includes that protective mechanism of the people that are important to you. And I'm not going to define that within a nuclear basis. But when we see that link, one, we see that we removed men to the point where they no longer thought that women did anything. And, oh, you know, it must be fine. La, 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 la. I'm not listening. Da, da, da. I don't hear anything. Do you hear anything? I hope it's a boy. You get moments like that, which suck. And then you lose out on the complexity of the woman's battle. I think that's where complexity reigns when we're allowing people to see the complexity in each other's lives. Yes, it became something where men dominated women. That obviously is incredibly wrong. And that lacks complexity. Where it started, I think, is where we need to go back to and then bring those instincts into our literature and bring those conversations back so we can build complexity off of the innate and off of the instinctual instead of the surface level of, well, you know, a woman being locked in a tower because she's pretty and somebody wants to make sure she stays a virgin. That's wrong. Yeah, that's awful. <laughs> that sucks. We can't do that. Are you, are you kidding me? You know, uh, I also do want to mention that such behaviors were usually tied to socioeconomic status. And when we talk about a lot of literature and documents that we actually have written down, what we're talking about is only a tip of the iceberg into what the human experience actually was. And depending on socioeconomic position and where you were in culture, there was no time in human history where women just didn't work. There was always women working. There was always women doing things. There was always women doing more than just being at home, depending on what socioeconomic status you had. It's only a fairly privileged few that got to have that woman in the tower and not the woman who's cleaning up after the horses and making sure that they get the seeds in the ground. So it is still an experience that we have written down because extant information tends to be written by people who have the luxury of being able to sit there and write it. And that there is an incredible difference between an agrarian culture, so a culture that started as an agricultural culture, and a nomadic culture. Cultures which were nomadic have far more indications of equality in women and shield maidens and archers on horseback than agrarian cultures where you were tied to a specific piece of land and thus things like the ownership of said land and thus hereditary rights became so much more important. So there's a very different kind of feel when you have that origin in nomadic and hunter-gatherer culture than if you have 
that same thing happening in an agrarian culture. So when we talk about the damsel in the tower, a lot of the time we are talking about things that were based around agrarian cultures. And they were also based around this idea of kind of hiding the icky bits of, of womanhood, but is also something that now today we get to fix. We do have to remember that the majority of fiction, now I'm specifically talking fiction, not nonfiction here. The majority of fiction is meant to be aspirational and escapist. You are creating a world, you are searching for ideals, you are creating something to aspire to. So obviously it is easier for somebody in a terrible situation to aspire to a better situation. And classic fairy tales, including princesses awaiting rescue, things like that, you know, they are talking about a certain rung of society that had the privilege of being able to have somebody in their family not out there work in the field. So in that case, they are aspirational. And when we look at developing characters, we need to remember to be aspirational. We need to remember to be slightly escapist. Realism is a beautiful thing. Realism can be a wonderful thing. But realism usually is something that you see within a time slot in society when things are going really good with the society. The economy is working. There's not a lot of social upheaval. That Then all of a sudden, ultra-realism and stories that bring in that sort of like, oh, man, that was such a powerful story of a woman going through struggling times and coming out the other end. And I can't believe she had to do the following things. That usually comes from a societal time period where the person reading it does not necessarily have the same experience in their own life. But when you look at fiction today and something that I think is very drastically visible when you look at the 2023 numbers when it comes to what films did well and which ones did not, we're all tired. We are in a huge economic depression. People are spending $7 on a loaf of bread and $12 on a carton of eggs. And so in this time, eventually people need escape. And that escape can still be aspirational. It can still, through complex and heartfelt characters, can still lead us to realize where we need to go as a society. But first, you need to entertain us. You need to give us a breath. We've been spending the last six years screaming. Aspirational but escapist, aspirational, but entertaining first is going to become very important because people need to know they can read a book and relax and not read a book and be like, oh man, there's so much evil in the world. Like we know this is the time to have those pioneering characters emerge who not only defy conventional expectations, but also portray more capacity, more resilience, and yet also more connection to others. I think that we're going to see in the very near future something similar to what we saw around the 70s and 80s for women in fiction. I think we're going to see a new shift in the societal norm of how women are presented in media. Some of these pioneering characters, and some of the most beloved ones to me, are Ripley from Alien and Sarah Connor from The Terminator. They not only entertained, but also inspired audiences by presenting a more realistic and diverse portrayal of women, showcasing their strength, intelligence, and resilience. And they were kicking ass, taking names, and doing more than that. That was totally awesome. 
This rise of strong women in fiction paved the way for future creators to explore more complex and nuanced female characters, contributing to a more inclusive storytelling landscape and giving us someone to look up to and carry on the, the feminine banner toward the future. And Princess Leia, for all of the whole, you know, George Lucas being like, there's no underwear in space, so there wouldn't be panty lines on her dresses. You know, for all of that, he was incredibly well influenced by his wife when it came to creating some of these characters, including Princess Leia. And we have this leader who starts off as a teenager coming into adulthood, who's incredibly disciplined in order to withstand torture sessions without giving up information, without, you know, causing herself less pain. She takes the pain to save her people. You know, she's going through all of this trauma of seeing Alderaan get exploded. She's firing at the enemy and making combat decisions. And then later on becomes a diplomat that helps keep an entire galaxy together. Like this is an incredible character. And yes, she falls in love and yes, she gets married. That's part of it too. But she's an incredible character when it comes to this time period as well. Yeah, and not just that time period, but also brings us into the modern era. In the contemporary landscape of sci-fi and fantasy, portrayal of women has undergone a remarkable transformation, ushering in an era characterized by powerful and multifaceted female characters. <clears throat> Buffy, Katniss, Everdeen from The Hunger Games, Laura Croft from Tomb Raider, and Nami from One Piece. Unlike their predecessors, these modern female characters possess agency and independence. They are active participants in their narratives, driving the plot forward, making decisions, and influencing the world around them. The modern era celebrates the diversity of strengths in female characters, whether displaying physical prowess, intellectual acumen, emotional resilience, or a combination of these traits. These characters reflect a more authentic and inclusive representation of women. Acknowledging the intersectionality of women's experiences, modern narratives explore characters with diverse backgrounds, ethnicities, sexual orientations, and identity. This approach fosters a more comprehensive understanding of the challenges and triumphs that women face. How do we take these complex approaches and view them within archetypal lenses that we can then use as a starting point to complexity in our own character building. I'm going to discuss seven of the kind of main Jungian archetypes that pertain specifically to women, and hopefully they are a springboard to see where do you want your character to start. And I say start because complexity within literature, if you're looking at developing a complex story, you're not going to keep that person in that initial archetype forever. Oftentimes, literature and good literature, especially science fiction, lots of people define science fiction as the human organism encountering change. And so if we microcosm that and make it character experiencing change, that change and transformation between one archetype and another can be incredibly good ballast and material for a narrative of your own. And so I want you to think of all of these as components that make up certain types of womanhood that can then be modified and adjusted and used as a basis and a springboard when you're developing your own material. So I talked a little bit when I was talking about the origins as with women as the cave, with that idea of the void, the darkness, that sort of comforting dark, that warm blanket kind of feeling. 
so that incubation of creation and sustainer of life, that's just kind of an overarch. Remember that. The first one I'm going to talk about is the lover. This one is pretty easy to get both right and wrong. (laughs) It is also easy to kind of muddle up. The lover tends to be something that we see a lot of. And when you get, say, men writing women tropes, this one trends to be a fairly like, we're going to be talking about villains soon as well. And the lover can very quickly turn into the femme fatale. That's sort of negative of manipulation, especially using sexual manipulation. This lover is the primal urge to connect and create. Think Aphrodite, think Samantha and Sex in the City, think Hathor. It's the sexuality of womanhood, that fetching nature of erotic energy and capacity for psychic and physical creation. So the lover is creative energy. It's this potential energy, this person who wants to connect and create. That's the beneficial parts of the lover in a place that you can start. Number two is one that comes up quite a bit. It's the huntress. So you're, you've got Artemis, you've got Bankamundi, Ishtar, Oya in Yoruban myths. You've got the personification of the independent female spirit. Now, this is the archetype where a female's autonomy and pursuit of her own life is sans encumberment. This is where you're going to get the not like other girls kind of feeling and sensation. You're going to get, you know, the positive versions of that where they don't feel a need to have to doll themselves up and wear crinolines and all this kind of stuff. No, they're wearing stuff they can move in. They're going hunting. They're going out there. They're fighting for their own goals without allowing encumberment from anyone else. This is a fairly lonely and self-reliant and aloof stereotype, but it's also the fighter, the hard knocks girl, the innate ability to focus and steer through competition And it's also one where a huntress being more solitary sets aside the needs of others to concentrate on themselves. In Lover, you've got a a sense of beauty and you've got a sense of a search for beauty. You don't have that in the huntress. The huntress is oriented by their own goals and what she wants to accomplish and what she's going to do and damn the rest. And it's a wonderfully vivacious archetype to get into. Then we have the queen. Think Hera. Think Frigg, think Orwell from Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis. This is the protectors of the sanctity of marriage, loyalty, feminine sovereignty, and matrimonial devotion. Now, Orwell was never married in the book. And so for an unmarried queen archetype, you're going to have either abstinence, usually abstinence, and meaningful alliances. There is always that sense with the queen that not only is she regal and stately and capable of running a business or a country, she's usually somewhat attracted to power and assertive figures, but she's bringing in meaningful alliances and connecting people within alliances so the collective can get things done. And she's in a little bit of a negative side, predisposed to jealousy and rage towards other women, which we see in... Hera, you know, we see a lot of that in Greek myth where, you know, Zeus once again goes off behind her back and does something bad. And Hera goes, nah, no, I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to let this stand. But the main thing about the queen is this is the protector. And by being the protector, she's being someone to inspire not only female sovereignty and devotion, but loyalty. And when that loyalty goes awry, that's when she gets her jealousy and her rage up. 
Then we've got the sage. Now, this is another one where the physical attributes of womanhood, as in physical beauty and things like that, are put to the side. You know, just like the huntress, the sage is not interested in physical things. They're not interested in whether or not they have the best eyeliner on. This is a woman's mentally focused pursuit of strategy, intellect, and rational objectivity. The sage encourages discipline, distance from emotion, objective power-oriented goals and strategies. They are practical, competent, and usually gifted in some form of practical art. Athena is a weaver. You've got Belet Serai, you've got Astarte, you've got Seshat, the Egyptian goddess of writing. You've got all of these characters and these forces in archetypal literature where this is more of the intellectual pursuit. This is the wisdom person. This is the strategy and discipline. Oftentimes, like with Athena, you've got some military motifs in the sage. And while not always asexual, but often asexual, sensuality is approached by less emotional standards and oftentimes more about how can you and I together conquer or come to various rational objectives. And so it has a lot less to do with sensuality. Often the sage is seen in literature to be the most intimidating and the most aloof of all of the female archetypes. This is the slightly more cold and calculating bitch. This is the one that you don't think you're ever going to get a hug from. She is this sort of lofty over there figure that does have warmth, but does not display it because she's busy. She's being rational. Someone has to keep their head. The mother, Demeter, Yamanya, Newt, Sibella, Gaia, Isis, Matisira, Zemlia. This is the natural caretaker, the bastion of maternal instinct and desire to create and provide physical, mental, and spiritual sustenance to life. The actual idea of womanhood. The lover wants the potential of life. The, the lover is a very potential and creative force, but the mother force is that archetype where now that created being, that creation that's being fostered needs to be provided for, needs to be mentally, spiritually, and physically sustained. And that's what a mother in this archetype does. They sustain physical, mental, and spiritual life. And so it's a very protective, responsible archetype and also very satisfied with taking care of others. In literature, does a mother archetype character have to be a biological mother? No. But is that idea of being responsible, protective, and satisfied with taking care of others present? Is that idea of sustaining life present? That's what makes that mother figure. Two more. The maiden... So think Persephone in Nana, Isis. Think of the character Tenya in Harvest of Horrors by Dazzle. This is the effervescent, youthful, and innocent pre-identity persona, often ending in either the discovery of sexuality in motherhood or in rebellion and subversion. So this is the sheltered daughter. This is the runaway. This is a character who's at the start of their journey. They're unaware of certain pieces of the wider world or certain feminine mysteries. They're not initiated yet into other feminine mysteries and other forms of life. They are fairly sheltered. They're fairly innocent. And then a maiden almost always transitions. 
You know, when you have a character who is the maiden archetype, who's not going to transition, it's because they are basically hiding their head in the sand and being very almost delusional because they're not going to grow up. You know, they're that sort of Neverland kind of character. But in this case, a maiden fully integrates and self-actualizes only after significant emotional or physical loss. And we see that in Harvest of Horrors with the character of Tenya, when certain things happen that you need to read in Macabre and Monstrous, a horror anthology of eldritch space, myth monsters, and forest frights, written and created by us and published by Vreda Literary. That is Macabre and Monstrous. Read it today. And so we see that in the character of Tenya too. She starts off in that maidenhood. She starts off in that innocence. And then by the end of the story, has fully integrated to a different realm of being once certain things take place, once there is a sense of loss. This character, again, Persephone is such an important figure in literature for thousands of years, going back almost 5,000 years. We have the same idea of Persephone, who starts off as this sheltered daughter, is sold into marriage by her father, unbeknownst to her, and then ends up in the underworld where she finds herself and becomes the queen in her own right, and not just because of the situation that was thrust upon her. This is also a situation where we see a character go from passive to active participant in their own life. Lots of maiden characters are passive participants, and that's where you get a lot of the damsels. A lot of the damsels that you see in pulp fiction and fantasy and fairy tale, they are representations of the maiden archetype because they have yet to fully integrate and self-actualize. And so we're seeing these maidenhead characters self-actualize only once something significant in their life takes place. And that's what happens to Persephone. What happens is she ends up becoming the queen archetype when she goes down and rules with Hades in the Chthonic realms. And then six months of the year, she comes back up to rejoin her mother and have that interconnected love and nurturing between mother and daughter again. And so you get that cyclical nature of a woman's life where half of her life, she's going to be in this aura of command. She's going to be within this relational aspect. And then the other half of her life, she's going to return to mother and return to that nurturing source where she gets to be fed. And I think that's another thing that's really important when we consider writing complex characters It's that we can't live inside a high-tension environment for long without breaking down. One thing that's really great with these archetypes and being able to morph between them is maybe your character starts off in that maiden position, and then she graduates to either the mystic or the sage or the huntress, and then eventually she needs to get her energy back somehow, so she returns to mother. She gets fed again. She gets that moment of calm, that moment of nurturing where she gets nurtured. And then she can go back out there and either do battle or nurture others or act with wisdom and strategy, you know, whatever it is. So I find it very important that we don't deny this maiden archetype, but we understand it for what it is. Everybody needs a self-care sometime. Great. But what you don't want to do is return to the shelter as trying to go backwards and be innocent again. You can't be innocent again, but you can still return to mother and get fed just in a different way as a slightly different archetype. The story of Demeter and Persephone is one of the oldest 
and longest standing stories we have, and also is defined by the Eleusinian Mysteries, which is one of the oldest continuous religious experiences that we've had for thousands of years. It's just incredible. I'll do an entire episode at some point with Eleusinian Mysteries and things like that, because I'm so fascinated by them, and I'm going to shut up about that now and go on to the mystic. And the mystic is a character like Hestia, Aberginia, Hildegard von Bingen, Mokosh, or the Deeser. Deeser, like a Scandinavian goddess. You know, the Berenginia, they are a protective goddess in Slavic literature. You've got Mokosh, which is a Slavic goddess as well. You've got Hestia, the goddess of the hearth. Now, the thing about Hestia that's important to realize is she's the goddess of the hearth, but she's also virginal. And she's the most respected of a lot of those goddesses. You see a lot of extant information of these little Hestian hearths in, in homes, in especially the Roman age, and then going down into Greece. So this is the sort of priestess energy focused on the inner world. This is, you know, the makings of the hearth and the home, an opposing influence to the huntress and the sage. The mystic seeks inward fulfillment and inner wisdom. They stay close to home. They value solitude. The mystic cultivates spirit and concentration. This is where you get that sort of mystical priestess energy. This is where you get that wise woman who stays close to home. Maybe she's got that, you know, she's in the forest and then she's kind of returning back and making that potion or making that restorative meal. And when you have that hearth-centered inner experience as the key component to your archetype, you are in direct conflict with the huntress and the sage who are constantly out there doing other things, staying away from the hearth and being very active in the world in a different way. And the mystic can also be seen in a very passive light, which when you're building complex characters, the most difficult thing is to take a character that seems passive and give them agency. So the mystics you get to see is these sort of priestess-like wise women, you know, the grandma sitting by the fire and people immediately discount that character because, well, she's not doing anything for herself. Well, she is, you're just not seeing it. And so it's our responsibility as creators to make sure that mystic archetype women still get to be seen in those active roles. And maybe that active role is within the realm of her semi-isolation. It's within that solitude. Maybe it's a choice that she makes within that hearth and that home, but we still need to see it. We need to see that she's not just baking bread. She's not just kind of sitting by the fire, but instead she is the force that keeps all of these other bitches together. And so throughout life, a woman's journey will include more than one of these archetypes. That's just the way life works. And so when we're transitioning characters, it makes it very intentional for us to think, okay, so we're going to start off with Maiden, or maybe we're going to start off with a Huntress and turn her into a Mystic. Or maybe we're going to start with a Queen, and then she ends up becoming a Sage. Or we start with a Lover, and she becomes a Mother. And at least this is a bedrock of fairly intrinsic, understandable stories and understandable kind of narrative flows that we know can work. I say can work because they won't always work. It depends on how the person writes it and who's reading it and the whole thing. But they are excellent ways of kind of getting into a place where we can then build upon to create our own original characters. But in order to create original characters, you have to know where characters came from in the first place. And you also have to know the sorts of archetypes that people automatically connect to. Archetypes are so important because they're part of the creative subconscious. 
they are things that people immediately and subconsciously connect to. And so when we have somebody that's entering that sort of space, given certain cultural context and clues and cues, they will liken a character like Katniss Everdeen to a Huntress archetype. So we do have to be aware that when we are creating these characters, if we want to subvert those traditions, we have to know what those traditions are. We have to know where they came from. A lot of people try to do it and they're like, yeah, well, I'm doing this archetype, but I'm actually going to do something else. Well, that's just something else. That's People are still going to connect it to these things. And unless you intentionally show them where they disconnect, they're going to think that you did something wrong when you wrote it. And I definitely want to make sure that we are clear that most of this character information is just about building good character. Build a solid character first. Build that character depending on the traits and the different archetypes that you're looking at and the way that you want that character to learn and grow and what you want your readers to learn and grow into and experience while they read. I think a lot of the quote-unquote men writing women get so stuck on, oh, I got to make sure that this is female And it's almost as if they're trying to be Ferengi from Star Trek, you know, oh, it's a female. Oh, she's wearing clothes. For those of you who don't know Star Trek, there's this race called the Ferengi. Oh, my God. I I love them because they're so stupid. They are. And they're hugely capitalist. And that's the reason they were created. They were created to be this like late stage capitalist race of aliens who believe that their women need to stay home, be naked and chew their food for them. And so when they come across women in clothing and women in places of authority, they're like, ew, oh, the humans talk about their women. And, oh. and you know, you have the female characters being like, I will slap you up the side of your earlobes. Yeah. <laughs> the female Ferengi are hilarious because they, they, they secretly take charge of the guys. It's hilarious. Oh, yeah. Quark. So in DS9, in Deep Space Nine. The character of Quark, he's a Ferengi, he's very shrewd. You know, he's one of the best characters, I think, in DS9. But his mother, oh my gosh, his mother's amazing. And she's, you know, like, oh, yes, dear, look at me, I'm naked at home. And then behind the scenes, she's like, and I'm also controlling a multi-billion dollar industry and you can't stop me. (laughs) Didn't she have influence on the Grand Magus, too? Yeah, she did. And she basically ruled from the back. And it was incredible. Like, it was awesome, you know? So you had this ideal with the Ferengi where, like, women need to be seen and not heard and they need to be constantly naked and chewing on their food for them and just being doting mother figures or sexual objects. And then you had what the actual women did about it. The Ferengi women you did see were the exceptions to the rules were like, nah. They revealed what they really were and then put the cloak back on so the men never caught on. Mm-hmm. Gotta stay face. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Star Trek has been subverting traditional gender roles and traditional culture roles since its inception with Gene Roddenberry back in the 60s. And I freaking love it. You know, there's never been a point in time where Star Trek hasn't been subversive in some way, shape or form and has not been aspirational and utopic. And well, I mean, it it got less utopic as as other people took it over. And so now the new series are a little bit less utopic. But the original Star Trek, they still had this sense of utopia was possible. And I love that because they did that by subverting things like the nagging wife, the empty headed sex symbol. They did that by subverting women in command. You have back in the sixties, Lieutenant Uhura. She's an officer. She's a female and she's African American. 
And that was part of her identity the entire time. They didn't make her an alien from a different world. They made her a human being as a very strong and shocking thing at the time that a woman of color could take command and tell people what to do. She could be the communicating, the lens piece, the mouthpiece of the ship and of the command to outside authorities and outside ears. That was incredible. That's how you subvert in a way that's also life building. You know, that character of Uhuru, she is amazing. Wow. You know, so that is an incredible example of science fiction subverting those means and subverting those traditions, while at the same time still allowing her to be pretty and feminine when she wanted to be. So we get to have all of those sides of the complexity in that coin, and I love it. And that's really what I think we need to do to avoid certain harmful stereotypes like the damsel in the stress. And the flatlined, manipulative, femme fatale, the nagging wife, the empty-headed sex symbol, and the I'm-not-like-other-girls kind of character. Yeah, we want to try to foster a more inclusive and nuanced representation. I mean, I'm of a couple of minds when it comes to overcoming stereotypes. Because if you do solid writing where you concentrate on making complex characters, a good 70% of overcoming stereotypes is done for you just by the process of being more complex, just by the process of being intentional with what kind of characterizations you're making. You're already halfway there. We cannot write, produce, edit, and release in a vacuum. Eventually, somebody other than yourself and your friend group is going to have to read it. You're going to have to have somebody who's aware of certain stereotypes and certain tropes and things like that to look at the manuscript because all of us have blinders. If you have no in to the authentic experience that you're writing about, there's going to be stuff you don't know. And we touched on that last week when we talked about Whiskey and Sinner's Blood and Fell Blooms, where we discussed that you don't have to have been married to understand the basics of how a marriage works, but having that knowledge changes the way that you write completely. And I think getting feedback at the very minimum from the people who have those experiences and making sure that your work isn't going against what actual experiences are like, then you're okay. Yeah, and I think in the same vein as all of these creators who want to write narratives which include people in certain kinds of militaries. Guess what? I've never been in one. So what do I do? I go to my veteran friends. Oh, hey there, Daz. (laughs) If I wanted to write this, that, or the other thing, what would the authentic experience be? I ask. I go, hey, this is my idea. How stupid is it? And it's like, well, that wouldn't happen, or this would happen instead, or this, or this, or that, or that. And then you're able to modify and adjust. But you cannot write more diverse and more complex characters if you don't have anybody in your life to reference or ask. You can't just learn from a website. That's like fourth level information gathering. First level is having your own experience. Second level is going to somebody with that experience and going, hey, can we talk for a minute? Can we discuss these things? Because I'm writing this book and I need to research. And that is so important. And Yeah, you know what, maybe you're not within the same actual physical geographical location, but that's why this wonderful thing called the internet is possible and why we can go on a Discord call, chat online. There's resources available to help increase the ability to diversify and add complexity to 
our works and it just takes time and research and it takes getting to know people. And usually by getting to know people, that means that you yourself cannot be an idiot, a moron, or an offensive asshole. Because if you're an offensive asshole asking somebody for help, they're just going to tell you to stuff it or go away. I think, you know, sensitivity writers are something that are part of the editing process. And really, it depends on the nature of your manuscript. I think it also depends on who this is potentially for. You know what your market is? Certain markets have more of a bent towards getting sensitivity readers than others. And really, it depends on the nature of your content. If you're just writing a cute little adventure story that's meant to be like, yay, look at this, yay, everybody wins in the end, then that's one thing. But if you're attempting to write a narrative of, say, a woman's experience going through war and coming out the other side as a refugee, then that's going to need a sensitivity reader where the cute little adventure story didn't. So it really is dependent upon the type of narrative you're writing, the type of characters you're putting in, how comfortable and how close you are to the material and what sort of genre expectation there is within the thing that you are attempting to publish. It's so different in the traditional than it is in the independent because for independent publishers, there is this instinct to do everything yourself, you know, get your editing done for free in various ways and just kind of go it alone. And it can be done well, but in my experience, the majority is not as well done as it could be. And if you are one of those who find yourself struggling to write better female characters, we have a short do and don't list to help you out. Starting off with what we were just discussing, harmful tropes. Uh, sensitivity readers are a big part of avoiding those harmful tropes. Be mindful of how your character's narrative may contribute to negative stereotypes or perpetuate harmful ideas about women. You also don't want to force the empowerment in your female characters. Allow character strength and resilience to emerge naturally from her experiences rather than imposing some kind of superficial trait. And you also don't want to limit their relationships just to their romantic interests. Make sure that you're exploring a range of connections, including friendships, family dynamics, and even professional relationships. Also want to make sure that your characters aren't overly perfect. Flaws and imperfections contribute to relatability and make the character more authentic. Female characters are more than their appearance. Make sure she has other facets beyond her looks. She can be sexy without being a sex object. And she needs to do something more. Basically, if you can replace her with a sexy lamp and she is not doing enough in your story. Yeah, and you want to provide agency and autonomy. You want to empower your female characters and make sure that she's making her own choices that drive the plot and contribute to her own personal growth. And on top of that, you want to make sure that you're incorporating a variety of traits, skills, interests that make your character well-rounded and authentic. Go ahead and make her that kick-ass hottie, but show her character flaws, her mistakes, and her weaknesses. Allow her to progress and struggle to attain the skills or things she needs to win. God mode does not stay interesting very long. So this is a very important part of that to make sure that those flaws, those weaknesses are also represented as well as the strengths and all the other things that make her kick-ass and great. Yeah. And you want to make sure that you are exploring her internal conflict and character growth. 
characters face challenges and overcoming struggles just tend to be more relatable and compelling to your readers. They need to have some kind of emotional depth and express a range of emotions and vulnerabilities that resonate with your readers. You want to consider unique perspectives. Capture the diversity of women's experiences by exploring different backgrounds, cultures, identities, and this is where you would also need to start thinking about your sensitivity readers and your beta readers. And she doesn't need a traumatic backstory. This has been used a lot, and in my opinion, it's been overly used for female characters. It feels like it's part of a how-to-make-a-female checklist. She can become a powerful character without having been broken first. Yeah, I think it's important to indicate that we're talking about traumatic. Insert a checklist of suffering, and she's had it all. Like we were talking about earlier with the maiden archetype, the maiden does not move on without some form of moment of loss. That is just part of growing up. Something happens where the loss of innocence, the loss of childhood is brought on, but that loss does not need to be trauma. That loss can be something organic, something natural. That loss can be something smaller. It could just be, you know, I finished, I graduated high school, and now it's time to go off to a new scary place. It doesn't need to be a list of dire trauma. And a lot of advice that I've seen is, you know, go with the strongest choice. While that is a fantastic kind of motif of writing when you're talking about interpersonal relationships between characters, like motivations between actors when they're doing a scene, that's within the scene work. That's within the narrative you've got. That doesn't mean that when you're building that narrative, when you're building that plot, you have to use trauma as the only fuel for growth and the only fuel for conflict. That's not how life works. We absolutely need to kind of be aware of that and make sure we're not adding that in such a firm way. That shouldn't be the concentration of your narrative for the most part. You know, some people do it, uh, but it's not for everybody. So today we were talking about how to make a complex female character. And we were talking about heroines, heroes, people on the protag side of life. Next week, we're diving into villains, the femme fatales, and other villainesses. So make sure to stay tuned. Don't change that dial. I know that's not how things work anymore, but you know, Spotify playlist, favorite, like, subscribe, everywhere. And with that, all you rebels, writers, and gamers, we're wrapping up another mind-bending episode of We Aren't Dead Yet, your go-to for all things TTRPG and Specklet. Stay wild, curious, and keep defying the ordinary. Until next time, hit up Wadi at vredamedia.ca slash Wadi. That's V-R-A-E-Y-D-A-M-E-D-I-A dot C-A slash W-A-D-Y. Like and subscribe, share with your friends, check out our merch store. We'll see you next week for more news, views, and hullabaloos. So keep the fires burning, the dice rolling, and the pages turning. And remember, there's always something we can do, because we We aren't aren't dead yet. yet.